everyone, welcome back to the show. My name is Brendan Anthony, and this is Environmentality. We have part four of a six-part series on coffee going live today with my interview with Dr. Erwin Donis Gonzalez, an assistant professor at UC Davis, talking all about post-harvest management and coffee. Super stoked for you guys to listen and continue on in this journey. Hopefully you have been learning a lot and will continue to recognize similar themes throughout these episodes and have strong takeaways for how you can engage with this product in a more sustainable way. We have a couple more episodes after this about roasting, retailing, and coffee chemistry. So a lot more exciting, fun stuff to come. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you are enjoying this. And if you are, if you want to leave me a rating or hit the subscribe button on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, that would help me a lot. Thanks so much, everyone. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Environmentality, a podcast for current environmental news, lectures, and interviews with the experts. I'm your host, Brendan Anthony. Let's dive on in. Hey everyone, welcome to the show, and I am so happy to introduce to you guys today Dr. Erwin Doniz Gonzalez at UC Davis. He works at the Coffee Center, specifically in post-harvest systems, and we are super grateful to have him on to talk about the wonderful world of coffee. So thanks so much for joining us, Erwin. My pleasure, Brendan. It's nice to meet you. Yes, likewise, likewise. So how about you go ahead and just give us a little bit of your background and how you got interested in agriculture and post-harvest systems. If you would have uh, the video on, you could see that in my background here, I have a bag uh, from a coffee, a coffee bag from Guatemala, where I'm originally from. And it really, coffee is my passion. Post-harvest engineering is my passion. And in terms of my background, I got my undergrad uh, degree in agricultural engineering uh, from a small university they call Universidad del Valle de Guatemala in Guatemala City. Uh, that was uh, around the year 2005. Immediately after I graduated, I opened my own company and I was the CEO of, of that company called Latin American Certification wow. or LATCERT. This was an independent certification and, and consultant body is specific in quality of, of agricultural produce. But we focus quite heavily in, in coffee because uh, coffee is uh, a very important commodity in Guatemala, as, as you know. And uh, uh, But then I wanted to pursue further. I wanted to continue with my graduate degree and specialize more specifically in post-harvest engineering. I've always had a passion for engineering and I've took a class in post-harvest and I said, hey, this is pretty neat. So I applied to uh, the Department of Biosystems and Ag Engineering at Michigan State University. But unfortunately at that point, they, they didn't have a position, but they did have a position open in plant pathology. And uh, so I got my master's degree in plant pathology, but specialized in post-harvest management and microbial decay of, of fresh and, and peeled chestnuts. Uh, worked with a, a renowned scientist in chestnuts, uh, Professor Dennis Fulbright. Uh, I graduated from my master's degree in 2008. Uh, and at that point, I applied again to the Biosystems and Mag Engineering Department at Michigan State. And at that point, through writing some grants and so on, I had an opportunity to pursue my doctorate nice. degree. Great. So, and my doctorate degree is uh, was related in uh, non-invasive assessment of quality. Uh, so, use fancy equipment to detect the internal quality of of products uh, like computer tomography, like that one that you use oh, in, wow. in in medicine. And uh, uh, in October two thousand fifteen, I had the opportunity of joining 
joining the Department of uh, Biological and Agricultural Engineering here at UC Davis, which I'm an extension specialist since and part of the coffee center, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah, amazing. So it sounds like a very sinuous road covering a lot of different topics from engineering to pathology to horticulture, post-harvest. It sounds very uh, diverse and obviously sets you up for a very unique position there at the coffee center. So that's awesome. I'm I'm curious, uh, did you come from an agricultural background in Guatemala? Uh, Yes, I did, actually. My my dad inherited a a farm in the outskirts of Guatemala City in a place called San Jose Pinula. And I loved being there. I, you know, a lot of my time off, I would just head out there. It was close enough to the city that I could head out there and stay out of the grid. So I was raised in an, an agricultural environment, and I love it. But yeah. really, my my passion is engineering. You know, I've sure. since I was a young boy, I remember just getting like little car toys and just putting them all apart and putting them back sure, together. Sure. So <laughs> trying to figure how they work. That's great. definitely. Well, you know, it's cool because I feel like post-harvest systems and post-harvest technology is a great way to fuse these two passions of engineering and agriculture together. And I'm wondering if maybe you could share and explain for the audience who might not be familiar with what post-harvest or post-harvest systems might be, what that world is and what it kind of pertains to. Yeah, so as being part of this department, biological and agricultural engineering, the name kind of hints what that means. I mean, it's a very unique department where we combine the biology of agriculture or biological systems and try to solve overarching issues in in biology through engineering, basically. That's what it is. In terms of post-harvest, post-harvest handling is the state of agriculture production immediately following harvest. So as soon as you remove the product from the plant, what are the steps that we take after? after that if in some fruits fresh fruits and vegetables for example this includes cooling and coffee we have drying or processing assessment of quality sorting cleaning transporting and packaging and all the engineering concepts around that and how to make this you know how to cater to the needs of of the product itself Uh, As a post-harvest expert, we are aware that we can't improve the quality and safety of the products after we have harvested. Uh, But that said, post-harvest is intrinsically connected uh, to to what we have in in pre-harvest. As it is our role, basically, to to maintain the quality, including this appearance, color, nutritional value, texture, flavor, and many others uh, for the uh, properties of, of the fruit. Uh, you know, in, in, in addition, proper post-harvest management allows us to reduce losses uh, between harvest and consumption, which adds to the, the uh, sustainability of food production. I like to, when, when I explain to people what post-harvest actually means and how does it compare with pre-harvest or with production, I make the analogy of an unborn baby. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, we have a baby. Uh, we have to take care of the mom and how she eats, how well she eats, sure. and so on. And But as soon as the baby's born, now we have to take care of the baby. You know, that's yeah. that's basically yeah. the role of us as, as post-harvest engineers. So we have to take care of the plant, uh, in this case, the coffee plant, so that it can produce high-quality, nice fruit. Uh, but then we have to take care of that fruit uh, once we've removed it from the plant. 
Yeah, and it's super critical. And I, I love that that metaphor and that analogy because you can invest so much time and energy and resources into developing a product, but if it just goes to waste and spoiled right away, then all that is for loss, right? And I think a lot of people, when they talk about this idea of food security and trying to feed a exponentially growing population, I think so often the conversation becomes about, oh, we need to produce more, we need to produce more. But in reality, there's a lot of spoilage and waste that's happening, especially in countries that maybe don't have all these technologies and systems to keep food uh, for a long time. And so post-harvest, I think, becomes really critical in terms of ensuring that we can achieve some of those food security issues for a growing population. Definitely. Uh, I'm actually part of the food uh, food loss and waste uh, work group here at UC Davis. Um, and of course, we, we try to reduce uh, food waste and loss. Uh, there's estimates that, I mean, up to 40%, 50% of the crops is lost after harvest, unfortunately, yeah. especially in developing countries, as you mentioned, because mainly because the, the techniques and the expertise and the uh, infrastructure does not exist mm. uh, for us to properly care for the products. Uh, that said, for example, in the case of coffee, uh, which follows what we call the dry chain, uh, once the coffee is dried and packaged properly, there doesn't need to be any significant infrastructure behind it. So... Crops that are dried, uh, again, like coffee, it can be kept well without much uh, energy or anything. So there, yeah. there's, there's, there's means of reducing uh, uh, loss uh, if, if properly handled, definitely, and very important for us as post-harvest engineers. Yeah, and I think it's very critical, as you mentioned, and I think it might even add some incentive for some of these growers in these nations to grow crops that can be you know, handled and processed and be able to kind of remain a little bit more shelf stable for a longer period of time. You know, I, you touched a lot up on this connection between pre-harvest and post-harvest. A lot of my research and focus has been on pre-harvest, but we know full well that, you know, again, our work can be, you know, in vain if it's not handled properly. And I think something that's becoming more and more important as we think about the world of post-harvest is not just maintaining quality, but maintaining the food safety of that product. And I'm wondering if you want to share anything about that world of food safety and how that's really, I think, uh, become a huge focus of our food system here today. Definitely. Food safety is uh, probably as or more important than quality. Definitely. If, if you get a recall of any product due to any safety concern, it's, it's been demonstrated historically that it's very hard to bounce back, you know, and uh, so, so, so food safety and taking all the precautions necessary to avoid uh, the different food safety concerns uh, is, is imperative for food production. Yeah. Uh, and there's many. I mean, there's, there's uh, bacteria, for example, and we're all very well familiarized with these. But there's others that, sure. that many of us are not familiarized with, and then they don't gain that amount of of attraction because they don't they're not as impactful as a bacteria, for example, Salmonella or E. coli. In the case of dry products, which includes coffee, one big concern is mycotoxins. Mm. Uh, mycotoxins are basically secondary metabolites. They're produced by fungi naturally. Uh, and the intention of the fungi is, is not really to, to kill or affect humans, but 
indirectly, these compounds can be toxic uh, to the liver. Uh, they can produce cancer and so on. And long term, if we consume mycotoxins, uh, this could definitely affect our health. So, so taking care proper proper care of the products, storing them under ideal conditions, uh, uh, avoiding a cross contamination with potential human pathogens, and so on, it's incredibly important. So, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, you know, human safety, as you mentioned, it has to be you know at the at the forefront when we're trying to ensure you know repeat sales and consumer satisfaction and and consumer acceptance of these products. So. I appreciate you highlighting a little bit more on that. I want to jump in more now to dive into, again, this this particular topic on coffee. And maybe you can share a little bit more about what the UC Davis Coffee Center is. I know it just recently opened, so wanted to maybe pick your brain on, you know, what is the focus and the mission of the center? So basically, uh, the, the UC Davis Coffee Center is uh, considered to be one of the first uh, multidisciplinary uh, university research center to address the challenges and needs of the coffee industry. And this is done through a holistic approach uh, to coffee science, uh, outreach, which is a lot what I do in my position, and education as well, uh, training our future experts uh, and students. Um, the center leverages our university global reputation. Uh, UC Davis has a, a global reputation of excellence, and it aligns all of expertise across campus and both applied and basis research to meet the needs of, of, of the coffee industry. Perfect example is uh, the director of the coffee center, Professor uh, William Ristenpart, Bill, as I call him. Uh, he's a chemical engineer and I am a biological and ag engineer. I am currently the Latin American, uh, the director for Latin American relationship for the coffee center. And my expertise is completely different to Bill's, but we complement each other. Uh, to, to, again, to address uh, great challenges in the coffee industry. Our, our mission basically is to build a comprehensive program uh, that can provide educational opportunities at all levels uh, and a broad spectrum of vital coffee research and in topics of utmost importance to the world coffee industry. Uh, and that includes research, uh, outreach, and education. Amazing. So you, you mentioned kind of having this focus on extension, working with Latin America. Obviously, there's not really a coffee industry in California where you're located. So I wonder if you can maybe share a little bit about the work you do in Latin America with the coffee industry there. Yes, definitely. Well, there there is, ironic, there's one producer of coffee here in California. Is that right? Uh, there is, yes. Uh, I, I can't recall what's the name of the company. I, I apologize, but... But I, I mean that there is a producer here. Okay. Uh, I'll have to look it up and put it in yeah. the show notes after. Yeah. Well, I, well, I could uh, look it up too and share it. Sure. But, but yes, definitely. Okay. So, uh, but, you know, in the context of uh, coffee, uh, as the audience is probably aware of, and especially in the context of specialty coffee, uh, which uh, is mainly governed by one species, coffee, coffee arabica, uh, is almost exclusively uh, preferred. This 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 coffee is almost exclusively preferred due to its superior flavor, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 as of as of now, 
you know, they're, the world produces about, I think it's about 10 billion kilograms, around 22 billion pounds of coffee, green coffee annually or per year. And of that, Latin America produces around 59% of it. It's wow. almost 60% of it. So that just tells you how important coffee is in Latin America. Yeah. It represents the majority of the specialty coffee that is consumed in the world and probably especially here in the United States. Uh, the United States, I believe, consumes around 20% of the world production of coffee. Wow. And of course, I'm a proud Guatemalan and a proud consumer. And I've always uh, loved uh, the coffee coming from Guatemala, you know, but but Guatemala is not the whole Latin America, of course. It's just sure. a, a little segment even in the coffee production. It's an important segment, but it's small. Uh, but I support, or we as a coffee center, uh, support uh, Latin America by performing in-house research uh, in place. And that includes um, uh, Central America, South America, big producing countries like, like Colombia, uh, Costa Rica and so on. Uh, we also uh, perform outreach activities uh, where we work with national entities uh, to train producers, processors of coffee. And of course, we, we collaborate with these local entities in topics of interest. Um, this includes, uh, for example, a, a project where we perform an in-depth analysis of the post-harvest processing phase of coffee, uh, which we've published uh, through the center, uh, where we describe uh, basically what happens with 100 units, 100 pounds of coffee, and how much does that end uh, in the consumer? How much do we consume and what happens throughout the whole processing? But we're also looking into techniques to improve drying, storage, and transportation of, of green and parchment coffee, if it's it's transported, is so it's it's very broad the type of research that we do. Yeah, and it's like specific it. to, to it's, yeah specific to each to each area and each needs basically. Sure, amazing. So I'm wondering then if you could maybe walk us through a little bit of what that process looks like. You mentioned this idea of green coffee, parchment coffee. Maybe this process of you know once the coffee berries come off the tree, what does that process look like in terms of getting it from the the cherry or the berry into the seed that can then be you know ground and, and brewed? Yeah, it's 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 complex and it varies uh, the, and, and depending on where you're doing it in the world. Sure. In the case of Latin America, the the predominant uh, process is um, what we call the wash coffee. Uh, Basically, a coffee cherry, which is what we know what you're calling the berry, you know, that's that's what we know as the coffee fruit. It's composed by, by six dis distinct layers or components, basically. Uh, the first is the almost layer known as the skin uh, or the exocarp. This is a thin, very smooth layer, which is what you see in the coffee. It gives that uh, color from that immature fruit when it's... Uh, uh, gr green to different colors, bright red, and in some less common instances, in some varieties, yellow or orange. And this, of course, depends on the variety. Uh, the, 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 this is just the, the outer surface, basically. The, the second layer is a, a yellowish, white, soft, juicy layer uh, that if you're familiarized with the fresh uh, fruit is when you 
you know, you bite into it, it's it's kind of like a slimy layer. And this is which is what we know as the outer mesocarp, and 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 both the 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 exocarp and the mesocarp together, this these layers are, are what we commonly refer to as pulp. You know, so in the in the case of wash coffee, uh, these two layers are typically removed through the process called pulping, or in the case, uh, you know, this this represents the the initial phase of milling, which is known as the wet wet mill. Third, there's the, the layer that strongly adheres to the interior layers of the coffee. This is known as a mucilage or inner mesocarp. It's kind of a honey-looking type layer, sticky layer substance that binds the coffee beans or seeds together. And this is also removed during the wet mill phase, but it's typically removed through anaerobic, anaerobic degradation or what's called fermentation or in some instances through mechanical removal or mechanical demucilizers, something like that. Forgive my English. <laughs> but, <laughs> Good word there. But, but it removes that mucilage mechanically, typically through friction. At the end of the wet mill phase, uh, we end up with what we know as the coffee parchment. Uh, at this point, um, it's kind of what what we see and what you see in the pictures looks has like kind of like a yellowish color to it. Uh, this uh, the, the fourth layer is actually what we know as the parchment itself. Uh, so there's a confusion there because there's a parchment, which is a layer, a papery papery fibrous material that covers the the beans or the underlying layers. But at that phase, the coffee is known as the coffee parchment or parchment coffee. Okay, so uh, when, when, when we mechanically remove this parchment or this layer, uh, we end up with what's called uh, the, the green coffee. And the removal of this uh, parchment or what we commonly know in the industry as the whole uh, is, is done during the dry mill phase. So uh, to summarize, we basically have two large uh, phases, the wet mill phase, which we're removing uh, the pulp and the mucilage, and and we and, and then the dry uh, mill phase where we're removing uh, the, the, the parchment. The, of course, there's other layers. You know, there's a fifth layer, which is almost unseen in coffee, uh, which is called the silver skin. Uh, this is the epidermis. Uh, this is this this layer basically surrounds the coffee bean, and it basic it basically becomes shaft uh, during the ro roasting process. So this was not mechanically removed in any way. And sometimes during the dry mill, it's it's somehow removed and it can be removed, but typically it generates into shaft in the roasting process. Uh, I forgot one step. Or I didn't forget. I purposely left it a little bit behind, but. Um, uh, the the purpose of milling is to remove the, the 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 layers of coffee and end up with the coffee bean what we know as the green coffee but we also need to remove enough water from the coffee mm, through, sure. through through drying uh, so and this occurs immediately after the wet mill and before the dry mill so we what we're drying is actually the 
coffee, the parchment coffee. And this is mainly done in Latin America. It's mainly done through patio, patio or sun drying, as it's commonly mm-hmm. known. Uh, but there's also mechanical dryers in Guatemala. We call them guardiolas. And uh, basically what happens is that when we're harvesting the coffee bean or the coffee cherry or the berry or the coffee fruit, as it's commonly known, uh, this one's contained like around 65% wet basis moisture content, so wow. a ton of water. Uh, but to obtain exportable green coffee, we need to dry it to around 10 to 12%. So there's quite a significant amount of water that is uh, typically uh, removed. Um, at that point, typically in countries of origin, we have what's, you know, after we remove the parchment and so on, the, the, the green coffee bean. Uh, this is what is shipped to consuming countries or yeah. roasteries. Right. Uh, but we rarely see a green coffee in the store. It's uh, true. Very rare. Because what happens is that, so it's shipped from countries of origin, this green coffee. It's shipped to the roastery. And typically in consumer countries like here in the United States, uh, the green coffee is further clean and then it's roasted. Uh, cooled and packaged, and that's what we see in the stores, or that's what we see in the. It's a long journey. Yeah. It's a, a very long, journey. long <laughs> yeah. very, very long journey. Well, it's it's really interesting, and I appreciate you so you know very detailed lying out that process because I think so often people don't understand how extensive that process is and all the steps to remove to get like the product that we see on the shelf. And I think it's really fascinating. And I think what we're starting to see more and more now as we look at specialty coffee is. You know, you kind of separated this uh, process into like the wet mill, drying, and then the dry mill. And I think what we're starting to see now is, you know, other forms of processing where then coffees are being dried at different stages of kind of those layer removals. Where, for example, you can have like natural coffees that, you know, are being dried with the full exocarp, mesocarp still intact. Then there are honey coffees, as you mentioned, where you still have that mucilage and they're drying with the mucilage on. And so all these things are obviously, you know, adding different flavors and and profiles and, and aromas to the final product that's then roasted. I'm curious if you are starting to see some of these more processes um, gain in popularity in the regions you're working in, or if these are things that they've been doing for a long time and actually you know, the washed is the more predominant and historical way of processing the coffee. The way you process coffee has historically been defined by the location in many instances. Interesting. And it's, it's, it's um, in many cases due to the readable available water, you know, and, sure. and many producing countries in Latin America, like uh, Guatemala, there's uh, Colombia, there's readily available water to follow the wash uh, process or the wet wet milling. Uh, but in other parts of the world where other coffees have developed, like in Africa and so on, where there's more naturals or honey type coffees, uh, they don't have the amount of water to properly wash it mm. this way. But, but don't take this as something negative because what you mentioned uh, in, in terms of different flavor profiles and so on have definitely gained tremendous attraction, especially with all these types of coffee. Sure. We all have different flavors. We all, yeah. you know, um, 
even even though we're we're mentioning even though we're mentioning Café Arabica, for example, there's another completely different coffee, Café Robusta, for example. This is mainly produced in Brazil, just to give you an example. And if you approach a Brazilian, uh, they're probably not going to agree with the fact that all of us think that Café Arabica is a much more flavorful coffee. They, sure. they, based on their palate, based on their preference, they they love their local Café Robusta coffee, mm-hmm. and they're adamant mm-hmm. that that's the best. And 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 again, taste is subjective, and uh, I respect you know everybody's taste, and I encourage people to, in the case of coffee, to experiment and and look at all the op- options that are out there, so that you can find the the coffee that you know fits your your taste the best you know yeah. what you like the most uh, uh, of course uh, the honey um, coffees they're, they're called honeys for example because if the mucilage is left in the coffee then you get this more like swedish type honey type flavor to it uh, some people don't like that they prefer mm. more like the acidic flavor sure. that other coffees offer like the wash coffee other profiles and so on so so yes this this has definitely created uh, you know different variety of products uh, different markets different opportunities for growers throughout the world uh, which is important and especially now with the you know internet of things and everything and how we can communicate very easily uh, through the internet and so on uh, we're getting more and more access to this specialty type processes that are right. in the world and i don't know as much from this other processes uh, because again you know being from latin america the majority of my experience expertise is in the wet washed method uh, but as an as an engineer and as being part of the coffee center we're intrigued and in learning more about these processes and applying what we know uh, even what we did in the project where we basically evaluated what happened with bean of coffee using what method and what what happens with with other methods too sure you know and how does that add to the sustainability of world coffee production yeah i love it well thanks so much for sharing all that um you know it's been interesting i've visited some growers in latin america who are experimenting with some of these other processes and it's been interesting to chat with them to evaluate how that changes their whole production line. Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of water in that initial cherry. And so when you start drying a full cherry, it takes a lot longer and takes up a lot more patio space to be able to dry that down completely to that point where then you can ship it. And so thinking about time and patio space, all these things play into the economics of production. However, maybe you can get a higher price point, you know, because it's maybe more specialty coffee. And so you have to work out those economics on a, you know, farm by farm basis. But I think it's interesting to see growers now with whatever resources they might have, whether it be space or water availability, as you mentioned, can start to dabble in these other types of coffee to fit, you know, the array of flavors that people enjoy around the world. Definitely. Uh, And the term in terms of of coffee, uh... We have to be aware that, that that there's many common post-harvest practices that are used in coffee, but the most common practice used throughout is drying, coffee drying. Mm-hmm. So when you mention uh, patio space, for example, 
we always have to make space for trying regardless, either either sure. mechanically, either in patio, uh, either in raised beds, as it's called. Uh, raised beds can potentially reduce the footprint of the patio drying because it enhances the mass flow, uh, air flow, mm-hmm. mass flow of water. So then we can we achieve a higher throughput of drying. But drying is probably the common, most common practice throughout the coffee industry in the world. We we can't avoid this face, in other words. <laughs> if, if we if we don't not dry coffee properly, regardless of which method we use to process coffee, that coffee bin is not going to last more than a couple of weeks. Mm, Simple wow. as that. Wow. We need to remove enough water from that coffee bean to make it shelf stable. Mm. Uh, it's highly unlikely that we will need to rely on fresh coffee, uh, sure. non-dried coffee, uh, mainly because of the infrastructure. At that point, it's, it's more like a berry. You mentioned the perfect word. It acts like a berry. It's going to rot like a berry. It's going mm-hmm. to develop mold like a berry in a pretty fast rate. It has high yeah. sugars, high you know other, other compounds that bugs and, and fungi, bacteria like. So drying is very common, and we can't avoid it. And that's why as a post-harvest engineer, uh, we do a lot of drying. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that kind of brings me up to the next question I was going to ask you was then, you know, at what stage in this whole process is there maybe the highest danger or, or maybe the most critical period uh, to ensure that there are not going to be any post-harvest issues, whether it be disease or, or these microtoxins or mycotoxins that you you mentioned. So, like, at, at what point is the most critical? What's the most like fundamental thing that a person processing coffee needs to do? I'm confident one of the most important factors in delivering a high quality and safe coffee being to anywhere you know anywhere in consumer is to properly control the moisture content of that coffee, and that's mainly done through proper packaging, uh, sorry, let me restart, through proper drying first (laughs) and then proper packaging once we've dried it properly. Uh, You know, those those natural or sun drying like we talked as well as artificial or mechanical drying or raised bed drying, whatever it is, it's recognized for me as a prerequisite to properly store, transport, and even roast coffee. You know, Mm. uh, we are... In, in, the, in the field of, of, of food consumption and so on, over the past years, we've, we've put more attention to a concept that is called water activity or the water that is readily available for biochemical reactions. And this is what defines how well coffee is going to be preserved, but it also it defines what is going to be the flavor of the coffee, how well it's going to roast a water activity defines what we know as the Maillard reaction, which is when all those nice sugars in the coffee brown and produce that nice brown roasted coffee uh, without the proper water activity, that reaction is not going to occur properly. Mm-hmm. So everything related to, in my view, or the majority of it related to coffee quality relies on proper uh, moisture uh, content. Wow. And, wow. and not only that, you know, like we're not only developing the techniques to dry correctly, but we also have to monitor drying uh, throughout the post-harvest phase. 
uh, you know, and 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 control the basic thermodynamic properties of this coffee that acts almost like a sponge, like a desiccant that absorbs and releases moisture based in the environmental conditions. So mm. we're not only controlling, we're not only drying, but we're controlling the dryness of that coffee, if you may, through proper packaging. Uh, but we're also placing it in an environment that is appropriate to keep that moisture. And we also need to measure and monitor the, the, the moisture or the water content of that coffee yeah. to, to keep it properly. Yeah, super interesting. I'm wondering then, does this play into this idea of wanting to ensure, you know, a proper process for drying, why patios are, are raked and, and, and kind of rolled over to help facilitate proper drying in a uniform fashion? Um, I'm, I'm also curious, are there particular materials that are best used for patios to, you know, maybe retain more heat or, or to have more uniform distribution of that heat for proper drying? I'm curious, just in terms of the process, maybe the patio is that why you know these things are happening there? The design of the patio is very important. Yes, uh, the 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 reason why you're moving the coffee is that even if you have a layer of not more than five centimeters, uh, you know, a couple inches of coffee, and you don't rake it or you don't move it, uh, that the moisture uh, and the lower layers, especially, is is going to be kept at a higher high level to a point where that coffee is going to degrade. So by by moving or raking the coffee constantly, in many cases at the beginning of drying, this occurs, you know, 10 times a day, depending wow. on, the, on the location and depending on the environmental conditions, is to, you know, to properly remove that moisture and enhance what we know as the mass uh, mass transfer of, of, yeah. of heat and heat heat transfer and mass transfer of of, of water uh, therefore a patio needs to be designed properly it needs to have the proper incline uh, to you know remove that moisture not only the proper incline to remove that moisture but if we get any rains uh, and the coffee's in the patio if it's covered for all that water to wash off readily easy um, ideally it also needs to be of a material that can be kept um, clean like a cement plank and so on to to properly safeguard the safety and quality of the coffee so uh, it's more complex than we give credit to sure it sounds cases. like it's it's dots <laughs> i've never connected before but as you're explaining it i'm like oh this all makes sense and it would require a lot of engineering and design i think to you know facilitate that in a nice uh, expeditious and uniform way. And then just, you know, lastly, in terms of this question, you mentioned this idea of technologies being used to evaluate moisture content. Is that something that you work on in terms of maybe engineering tools or technologies uh, to be able to evaluate things like moisture content? Yes, actually, that's, uh, you know, being here in California, an extension specialist working here in California, you work a lot in drawing. Uh, we produce the majority of tree nuts in the world, almonds, mm. pistachios, walnuts, uh, mainly those three. Uh, and uh, because of that, California is well-renowned and well-known in how to properly dry products. Mm. Um, uh, but, uh, but in addition to that, uh, when we're drying, we need to be able to measure how well they're dried. In terms of coffee, uh, it's a little bit complicated it's complicated because 
the majority of the coffee is is tried in house in in producing countries which don't have access to the technologies that in many cases uh, we have access here in the US California included but because of that we're looking at alternative options of how to properly measure moisture one example is a a product that came out of research here from from my, my lab uh, from the Horticultural Innovation Center here at UC Davis in the Pulse Harvest Technology Center is the development of the, the dry card. And the dry card is a simple, inexpensive method that can properly uh, monitor the water activity uh, after a certain time. If you set it in equilibrium, uh, this dry card equilibrates into in a sealed container of coffee after like 25 minutes. And it provides you an estimation of how well your coffee is dried. Wow. And this dry card costs less than, you know, 10 U.S. cents uh, wow. uh, to, to produce. So it, it could become, you know, uh, if, if properly trained, producers in-house can, can utilize this. But we also know that the majority of coffee is processed by larger companies that do have access to this, to, to other technologies. So... We are developing, actually, as, as we're speaking here in my lab, we're, we're developing uh, inline electronic techniques to determine the moisture content of coffee. The content of coffee. Uh, we're using, actually, a pretty unique technique that is, I mean, we're not reinventing the wheel, but this technique has been used in the cement industry, <laughs> ironically. Interesting. Talk about patios and cement. Yeah, and now we talk go. about cement. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the cement industry, when they're mixing their cement, they have these probes that is called time domain refractometry probes that can relate well to water content. So that's how they add water or remove water from the mixture, basically. Cool. But we found that this technique can also be utilized for crops. And co we so, so as part of our efforts here in, in, in the coffee center and in my, in my lab, post-harvest uh, engineering lab uh, uh, at UC Davis, uh, we are using this technique, time domain refractometry, to determine the moisture content of coffee in line, which could also wow. contribute to a better monitor uh, the moisture content of coffee. So, yeah, there's several options that we're looking yeah. into. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And, and again, like the different flavors and different profiles, you have then options for kind of two different styles of production where you have something like a low-cost you know, technology that pretty much anyone in the world can use and then something that's a little bit more high-end and detailed for, you know, bigger operations. So I think that's incredible. I didn't know that you had worked with the Horticulture Innovation Lab. I, I'm familiar with like the solar dehydrator and the cool bot, and I'd actually seen that dry card before. So that's cool to kind of see that all come full circle and, and hear that you were instrumental in that. Yeah, it, it, the dry card, is if you're familiarized with it and you're familiarized with the Hort Innovation Lab, you're aware that the dry card is not selected. You know, it's just, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter which crop is determining, sure. the, you know, the water activity. So coffee is a great fit, actually. Yeah. Uh, when we traveled to Central America to do our project uh, or, at the end of the year 2019, uh, related to coffee processing and mass flows of coffee, we took a bunch of dry cards with us and it was cool. impressive how well accepted they were in, the, in yeah. the community down there. Amazing. It's huge. What a great accomplishment. I wonder then just kind of in line with that, as we kind of start to conclude our conversation here, you know, what might be 
a big goal or a research objective that you have, you know, kind of working forward, looking into the future uh, that your lab has? Uh, there's many goals, you know, sure. that, 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 that we have, uh, and I've mentioned some of them, you know, here uh, related to bettering the way that we transport coffee. Uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm actually working with one of my graduate students. Uh, her name is Laria Anokie. She's originally from Ghana, actually, and I are, are working in improving the storage and transportation of green coffee through evaluating the use of desiccants for proper moisture preservation of green coffee. Cool. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, we're also developing this system to automatically and non-invasively assess the moisture content of coffee throughout the line. So it's mainly working in improving the storage, including uh, which is, you know, very, very tied to coffee quality and, and yeah. so on, which is important. Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, right, you are maintaining and preserving the quality that's been developed in the field. So people like me and, and our listeners can enjoy our favorite beverage, coffee. So I appreciate that. One last thing then, I guess, if you had, you know, one thing you'd like to communicate to coffee consumers, I'm assuming almost everyone listening drinks coffee. There's, you know, one kind of big idea or word of wisdom you'd like to share with them what would that be oh let's see coffee is always a good idea (laughs) (laughs) but jokes aside you know getting coffee coffee to your table as you mentioned uh, to our to our home every morning and and having access to those beautiful smells that offer the coffee offers us, it takes a lot of passion. It takes a lot mm-hmm. of human effort, resources, and it's related to production, post-harvest processing, distribution chains, and this is all very complex, as we've inferred during our conversation. Actually, it's it's uh, our study, uh, which was um, you know, a collaboration between students, myself, the director of the coffee center, the student that was involved in the comprehensive analysis of the mass flows of coffee. His name is Neil Rota. He was from the International Ag Development Program here at UC Davis. We determined that it takes around 30 operational steps in Mm. the coffee wet mill and dry mill, as I mentioned, to produce what we know as coffee, 30 operational wow. steps. Wow. So, you know, this, this, in addition to the fact that, that we determined through this study that around only 3% of the total coffee mass pro- that is produced is actually consumed by humans. So 97% of the harvested coffee material somehow becomes a byproduct. Sure. So take home message, probably it's a long answer to your question, but in summary is, so next time that you're drinking a cup of coffee in the morning, think of all the steps that it took, you know, yeah. and all the resources that it took to deliver this to your home and just cherish that beautiful moment. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the, the beauty of coffee. It's everything that is behind it. And we work very hard or the industry works pretty hard to produce that uh, for you for, and your consumption and, and your enjoyment. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I'll definitely be drinking my coffee moving forward with a deep sense of gratitude, hearing you kind of lay out everything and hearing 30 steps. It's tremendous. So it's certainly a lot of gratitude. And also, I think that adds a lot of value to the product. And I think we should continue to place that value on this product as something that is to be revered and to be appreciated and to be willing to pay more so that, you know, farmers and everybody in the supply chain are getting their fair share 
uh, to again deliver this product that we all love and enjoy so much. I couldn't have said it better. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton and I hope our listeners did too. And I am just very grateful for your time and I wish you all the best with your ongoing research. I wish you the best too, Brendan. Thank you for contacting me and for uh, you know highlighting the importance of the coffee center here at UC Davis and our departments that are working really hard. And it's, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. My pleasure. So as promised, I did some research after the episode to inquire as to who is growing coffee in California. And it seems that there's actually dozens of small farms scattered throughout California, primarily in Santa Barbara and San Diego County. But it looks like probably the largest company that's doing it and sourcing it to growers around the state is Fringe Coffee, Fringe, F-R-I-N-J. French Coffee, again, they're located out of Santa Barbara, San Diego counties, and are trying to really propagate coffee all over the state and try to make California the next high-quality coffee production region in the globe. So really interesting and fascinating pursuit. So if you guys want to check out French Coffee, they have a great website and a lot of really cool things that they're up to. So for all you Californians looking for local coffee, you have an option now. All right, everyone. Take care and have a great weekend.